0: If you only focus on super prime real estate in, in build quality and develop quality, you'll do better in a good market and you'll survive when everybody else dies.
1: Hello and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal, where your host is Isabella Farr.
2: And Susanna Kavanaugh, and today we get to pick the brain of one of the more prolific players in luxury real estate, that's investor and developer Michael Schveau. Isabella, how would you describe Schwo to the unfamiliar? Because from my reading about him, he seems to be... You know, quite the character.
1: Yeah, he's luxury through and through. He's clean cut, all about the brand. At one point in our interview, he even refers to shvowing up a property. Before the pandemic, he gained recognition for these headline purchases. He made like the Coca-Cola building. That's at 711 Fifth Avenue in New York. But like a lot of other investors, he's deployed a ton of capital since 2020.
2: Mm. Yeah, I know we covered his purchase of the Transamerica Pyramid in San Francisco. That's another office tower that I saw. He's now renovating, actually. And that's that's interesting to me because we've focused so heavily on the troubles with office. I know there is this flight to quality story, but even some of the nicer buildings along Fifth Avenue in New York, like those are struggling too. So did Shvo seem worried about that?
1: Yeah, so obviously, you know, it's uncommon for office investors to talk badly about their own sector. No one really wants to do that. But given the environment, we have seen firms like SL Green, for example, acknowledge the troubles in the space and discuss moving away from pure play office. Shvo is not in that camp. Although he does more than just office, he has pegged himself as one of the earliest companies to call workers back. He believes that there's still demand for Class A space for back to work. And to prove it, he's developing new office buildings in Miami Beach.
2: Well, we love a contrarian, especially a committed one.
1: Mm -hmm. And fittingly, our conversation was also in person. We chatted at one of his new branded condo buildings, that's the Mandarin Oriental Residences in Beverly Hills, about his take on where the commercial market is headed at large, the financials for building condos versus rentals, the impact of rising rates, and why, despite all the press around San Francisco's office market, why he still sees opportunity there. Hmm.
2: Okay, well, sounds like there's a lot there. But before Shvo, here's what you need to know from last week. Let's start with the Brookfield news that you broke, sort of the counter argument to Shvo's office bet.
1: Yeah, so Brookfield defaulted on a $784 million loan tied to two trophy office towers in downtown L.A., That's 777 South Figueroa Street and the Gas Company Tower.
2: That is a big flop. So curious if those loans were floating rate?
1: Yeah, they were. So they definitely were impacted by rising rates. And Brookfield, on one of the loans, didn't elect to get a rate cap. We've reported before that rate caps have become very expensive to buy. And on the other loan, they didn't try to extend the maturity date of the debt. Um, It's funny because before I actually reported the story, I noticed that their loan was coming due in February. But I saw that they had kind of a couple extensions on the book. So I was like, oh, they'll probably elect for the extension. Everyone at this point has kicked the can down the road. But they didn't. So when that loan came due on February 9th, it triggered a default.
2: Okay, so we're starting to see in some cases you can no longer extend and pretend or pretend and extend, whichever way they say it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: Okay, so two questions on that. Number one, are we expecting Brookfield's lenders to foreclose?
1: That is the standard course of action. Brookfield did say that lenders could exercise whatever remedies they have, and that includes foreclosure. So we'll see whether or not they choose to do so. Um, Or come to some sort of workout where they hand back the property or put it up for sale.
2: Got it. Okay, so that's on the table. And then number two, Brookfield is a major player in downtown LA's office market. So should we read into this default? as a possible bellwether for distress in the sector at large?
1: Yeah, it's definitely the biggest default we've seen. And Brookfield is the largest office owner in downtown LA. We've had a couple of other foreclosures, um, the Broadway Trade Center, for example, which Starwood took over, and Oaktree just took over a CoreTrust Capital Partners building in downtown LA. But this is definitely the largest loans that have come into default. So, you know, we'll see where it kind of goes from here, but it's not looking good for the market.
2: Got it. Jumping over to New York, we got a look into Vernado's balance sheet last week, and the forecast could definitely be rosier. Steve Roth's firm, during its fourth quarter, earnings call acknowledged that 2023 will be a down year, but one that will highlight well-heeled landlords.
1: What does that mean exactly, well-heeled?
2: Yeah. So basically, given all the stress in the air, tenants are going to look for property owners who kind of seem like safe bets. So they aren't over leveraged. They can hold on to their buildings. Those owners will be rewarded with leases. The others may be in for some trouble.
1: So does Vornado think it's immune to the challenges in the market?
2: No, like it definitely acknowledged that high interest rates and slowed leasing are both troublemakers that it can't completely avoid. And it said it may have to ditch some properties altogether it also defaulted on a $450 billion non-recourse loan on a Fifth Avenue property. It couldn't refinance the debt, and now it's working with its lender to figure something out. But if it can't, it's going to have to hand the keys back to the bank.
1: I'm curious to see when those defaults will start to show up on the balance sheets of some of these big institutional banks, You know, like we've seen in LA or New York at this point.
2: Yeah, same. I was kind of poking around earlier, and I saw a little bit cropping up, like, For citizens, for example, but I think, you know, we're still just working through fourth quarter earnings at the moment. So I think once we see first quarter turn up in the spring, I think it'll be a little bit more of a sign of that. Certainly something to watch either way.
1: Definitely. I also wanted to spend a moment talking about the multifamily financing environment in L.A. So basically, lenders have pulled back on construction financing for ground up projects since Measure ULA passed in November. The measure, which goes into effect in April, will add some steep transfer taxes on any residential or commercial sale north of $5 million. So for any sale between $5 and $10 million, it'll be taxed at 4.5 percent. But any sales over $10 million will be taxed at 5.5 percent.
2: Okay, that seems significant. And it kind of reminds me if I can throw out a metaphor. I'll try a metaphor here. It kind of reminds me of our episode last week where it's almost like a game of telephone from, you know, financing to building to leasing to an investment sale, and if you mess with any part of that chain, it affects how players respond down the line hopefully that's not too obscure
1: no that's definitely the sentiment so this heavy tax is throwing off banks which don't know what a property's value will be three five ten years down the line so they don't really know how to underwrite those loans and then some won't want to convert construction loans into traditional commercial financing when the work is done because they don't know when it's going to sell so all of that is a problem for investors
2: that completely makes sense. And then last, I wanted to touch on this investment fund targeting distress and the Sun Belt that we learned about last week.
1: Distress in the Sun Belt. That's not you know, two terms that have gone together over the last couple of years.
2: Yeah. So last week, we reported that Arnaud Carcenti, who leads Miami's 13th Floor Investments, has launched a $300 million fund targeting distress, targeting the Sun Belt. Some of that distress is in the Sun Belt. So In part, he's looking at an upswing in the lower third of the United States, he said, which is interesting because I know you just co-wrote that piece about tides equities having issues in the Sun Belt. They secured floating rate loans. Rents haven't continued to rise. Now they're sort of getting squeezed. But Carcenti, he's also looking to pick up properties like perhaps tides equities because he's seeing some level of trouble in that region.
1: Got it. So They're really aiming at a little bit of everything here.
2: Yeah, it looks like it.
1: That's also a good way to describe Shvo's investment strategy. So let's take this transitional opportunity to jump right into that interview.
0: My name is Michael Shvo. I'm the owner of Shvo, which is a owner, operator and developer of super prime real estate throughout the United States commercial residential hospitality and retail we're here in Los Angeles um, at a project that we just completed which is the Mandan oriental residences in uh, Beverly Hills beautiful project then these are standalone residences turnkey residences so you can move in here tomorrow and have your entire um, your entire apartment fitted um, from furniture to towels to robes to everything you would get in a hotel You don't have to, but it's an option. And from a service perspective, obviously the legendary services of Mandarin Oriental with everything you can imagine from the Mandarin spa, the gym, the rooftop with the private pool, the lounge. I mean, of course, part of my favorite uh, um, aspects of this project is our own Danielle Baloud, who both has a restaurant on the ground floor that will be open to the public here in Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. and a private Danielle Baloud restaurant which is called Baloud Privé on the roof private dining for residences, in-room dining, and at the rooftop. This property, very much like the mandarin Oriental on Fifth Avenue, that is a sister project of this uh, property. The idea is to cater to people's uh, desires today, which is to live a hassle-free life.
1: Did you take what happened in New York and we're like, we want to recreate this, or...?
0: actually these are this these were like having twins both of these properties were really conceived and acquired more or less at the same time um both fifth avenue and um and beverly hills were, were purchased at the same time and developed more or less at the same time and the idea is obviously there are there's the similarities between new york and uh, between fifth avenue and beverly hills right these are the the heart of of luxury in, in their uh respect markets um, and as I said, we wanted to give a solution to something that doesn't exist, which is truly living in a hotel, but without having the transiency of the hotel guests. So these are all private residences, but there's no hotel guests here.
1: Got it. So you talk about the similarities between New York and Beverly Hills. One of the big, I think, differences, the condos in New York have been very successful for a number of years. New York has a very, very strong condo market. L.A. has traditionally favored single family homes, right? You know, what attracted you to build condos in L.A.? Why, why build them?
0: Well, let's start with the fact that there aren't any good quality condos in Beverly Hills. It's a very tough. It's interesting. It's a chicken and egg story because developing, particularly in Beverly Hills, is extremely, um, extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. The entitlement process here takes seven years to get permits, to, to, to get entitlement to build residential buildings. Once you have the entitlement, you're alone in the market. So to start with, Beverly Hills does not have or has not had historically any true great luxury product. Um, at the same time, like every other market, the demand for, for condos comes from a few different locations. One, from obviously pied-à-terre buyers, people that want to have a place in Beverly Hills and want to lock and go. And these are not necessarily full-time residents, but at the same time, there are there's demand from um, owners of, as you said, single-family homes that the house got too big. They don't want to worry about the staff. The kids went to college um, or they just want a safer and more secure building, which is today obviously a bit of an issue here. So... I think, you know, we saw the uh, the opportunity of really filling a void that didn't exist.
1: So I'm glad that you brought up how difficult it is to build in Beverly Hills. You know, obviously, this was something that you were committed to for a very long time. What happened when COVID hit? Did you start changing your mind at all? Did you backtrack? Or were you worried about it?
0: Right. It's interesting. So I think that you guys reported quite actively. Um, I was probably one of the most active buyers of real estate through COVID we bought a few billion dollars worth of real estate through the pandemic. I said, you know, when I opened the Bible, God said to Noah, when there was a flood, I will never again destroy the world. So if we know it's not the end, we should be buying real estate. And I said that, you know, in April, you know, just past when COVID started. So we took the other approach, the exact opposite approach through COVID. We bought a lot of real estate, you know if it's the pyramid we just closed on the coca-cola building we've done multiple transactions through the pandemic because i did see the opportunity both where again i believe that we're going to get out of it i was clear to me that it's not the end of the world and borrowing costs were extremely low so of course hindsight 2020 but we also acted and i've also acted aggressively through the pandemic so the answer is no obviously we did not change our mind like everybody else through the pandemic uh, um you know, things that were not, unfortunately, not in our control, where where, in New York City, as an example, the city shut down construction for a period of time. Beverly Hills did not shut down construction. But like everywhere else, they've limited the amount of uh, workers that you can have on the site. And every time there was a COVID incident on site, you know, they had to shut down, they had to you know, decontaminate. So it, it definitely slowed down the process. But I was extremely committed um to all our projects we you know we we continued construction we continued acquisition and you know I think I'm one of the first guys that brought employees back to work Uh, um the Chabot team came back to the office I believe it was June um of um you know June of 2020 which is three or four months after the pandemic uh, um, hit when the governor in New York said that you know, it is uh, safe to bring people at at low capacity. We have large offices, so we brought everybody back. And again, hindsight, everybody's happy. We did that because we did have the ability to execute on billions of dollars for the acquisition that we could not do that if people were sitting at home in their pajamas. Right.
1: So now, you know, fast forward, we're in a different rate environment where, you know, in a period of all of, I think, this is a sentence that is used often. In the real deal at a period of kind of rate uncertainty and economic uncertainty, and you're opening a condo building. How are you expecting sales? How are you kind of marketing the project in a time where maybe pull- people are pulling back from buying residential?
0: Well, first thing you don't really see it at the at the level of what we're selling, which is at the top of the market. Um, you're not really seeing people pull back, at least we haven't seen, because I could tell you that every single buyer that has bought here has closed in cash. You know, the real estate that's struggling now is those at the middle of the market or at the bottom of the market. So we haven't really seen any great kind of uh, um, slowdown. There's obviously a, a, a mood shift, but you know, I think that you referred to rate uncertainty. Um, I think today, actually, as we, as we stand here in February, I think that there's a lot more certainty than most people thought on where the rate is. I think there's a, there's a consensus that, you know, the next 12 months, maybe 18, we're still going to see a high rate uh, um, environment. But even in the past, um, we're in the market right now for a couple of loans on new acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't ask me which ones. Mm-hmm. We see already that, that rates, that spreads are coming in. Right. So spreads have have tightened over the past few weeks, which is obviously a good sign. So So
1: I wanted to bring up, you know, one of your biggest projects that have come out of the last two years, the Trans-America building in San Francisco.
0: I love the Trans-America building. Fantastic building. Uh, We were bidding against 44 bidders um, when the building came to market. Six months of bidding and we were very fortunate that we were awarded the deal. How Uh, did you win? Well, that's a conversation probably for a whole other interview. But, you know, perseverance and the help of God. So we're, we're down to four bidders, and it was fairly known. It was Vernado, it was Ashkenazi with HBJ, it was Gaw Capital, and it was Shvo. And everybody's bidding. It's kind of the last round. And four days before the last bids are due, my partner is from Denver, sends me a photo of his kid, 10-year-old kid, Lucas, with a golf ball in the hand. I don't play golf. He sends me a zoom, a kind of a zoomed image of the ball. The ball had the Transamerica logo on it. Four days before the final bid, he found the ball in, the, in Denver, in the middle of the woods. At that point, I knew the building was mine. You know, it's not only the building. We own the entire block. Transamerica Pyramid Center, which is the pyramid, the uh, Redwood Park, two Transamerica, and three Transamerica, or, or the future home of three Transamerica, which is a uh, development site. We've, we've hired Norman Foster to, to help us reimagine what would be the new Transamerica Pyramid Center, and we are in i just came from there a few hours ago we were in full construction there and by the end of this year we will uh, um we will expose to the world kind of the um the reimagined uh transamerica pyramid center we're restoring and reviving obviously the, this great marvel and i think that that it will be the the heart of you know downtown san francisco which very much needs is in need of um rejuvenation and a. And a, and a big focal point.
1: Right, that's what I was going to bring up. Obviously, San Francisco is a market that has really struggled to come back from the effects of the pandemic. Vacancy is very, office vacancy is very, very high. Tech firms are making massive layoffs. How are you, you going to get firms in there?
0: The headlines, right, of, of, um, of flight to quality. Transamerica is probably, from everything that I've done, is the single building that has proven the flight to quality uh, theory in much more aggressive numbers than anything else. We are renting today, when I just started construction, at double the rates, double the rent that we did pre-COVID, double, unheard of, rents that, you know, we broke every record, every record outside New York City. Massive, massive rent numbers there um, because there's only one Trans-America pyramid. So it's even more interesting because as you said, the vacancy rate in San Francisco is very disturbing. Um, I think office vacancies is, is over 20% right now. There's multiple things that happen in San Francisco. San Francisco is very much dependent on tech, right? And through COVID, tech companies figured that maybe they could work somewhat from home. Mm-hmm. But when they, when they came back to work, you know, they were a little bit, they were, they were late to the game and it's a bit of a, of a vicious cycle there in San Francisco. Um, I do have spent time with the mayor, and I, I think Mayor Breed is, is understands the responsibility she has, mm-hmm. which is not only bring the tech companies back, but also uh, um, make sure that there's other industries that are attracted to San Francisco. Still, if you look at the VC funding, San Francisco is is number one in the country. So there are some there's some very good San Francisco facts, but the reality is that that we're still seeing you know we're still seeing Companies vacate, could so we've been very, very fortunate because we don't have that issue in San Francisco. Again, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm, I have a billion dollars invested in one city block, so clearly I, I'm a believer in the city, um, and I also believe that what we're doing is going to be a strong catalyst for the revitalization of of downtown.
1: So we've talked a lot about LA and San Francisco at this point, but I wanted to jump to New York. Um, we reported that you were interested in a number of office buildings. Are you still looking at office in New York? How do you think about the office market there? It's
0: a Good question. You know, we, we own it, the last three buildings that 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 traded on Fifth Avenue were buildings that I purchased, right? So 730 Fifth Avenue, the Crown Building, which we partnered with Amman and with Akko to develop the Amman, which just finished a fantastic project. 685 Fifth Avenue, which is the Mandarin residence and 711 Fifth Avenue, which is Formerly known as the coca-cola building two of those were obviously conversions Seven Eleven is we kept his office Same thing with 530 Broadway. I'm quite bullish on New York office, but that's not a on the New York office that I care about You know, somebody asked me a great question about, you know, what do you think about the market? That's like me asking you. What do you think about baseball in sports? You care about your team? everybody else can lose mm-hmm. right so but but I'm saying that because we are so focused on what we do, which is only buying super prime real estate. Mm-hmm. And as you guys reported, as today is is common sense, and we've been doing this since I've started real estate two decades ago, if you only focus on super prime real estate and in, in build quality and develop quality, you'll do better in a good market and you'll survive when everybody else dies. And that's really what happened through COVID. Interesting, through COVID, when everybody died, the super prime real estate, the quality product has excelled. So we are, the, to answer your question, um, is yes, we are bullish on the type of, on SHPO quality buildings, on buildings that could fit the SHPO portfolio. Um, we are in the process of acquiring two buildings in New York City um, right now, under contract to buy two properties in New York City, two office buildings. Um, again, that will go through the transformation, will go through reimagination, will go through um, elevating them. But these are buildings that, you know, in a normal market, when there was no stress in the market, I could never put my hands on.
1: There's also been a lot of talk around office to residential conversions. Are you on that bandwagon? Is that something you're looking at?
0: I am not on that bandwagon. Why is that? Um, because we are not specialists in that. You know, we have a, we have a saying at Shapo, only do what only you can do. And I truly believe that. And there are other people that could do that better than us. Um guy like Nathan Berman, who's a true specialist, um, that's an expert in that field. So if if we can't be the best at it, we just don't play in that arena. The same reason I don't run the marathon. If I can't win, I don't run. Think about, again, you reported on different uh, um, owners of property uh, um, recently that that are giving back buildings to the bank that are you know defaulting we don't have that problem we only have super prime real estate we only have super quality buildings our buildings are you know occupied most of them in the 90 plus percent with long-term debt mm-hmm. i don't have the problem that we own you know v buildings or buildings that have you know huge vacancies that i i need to find a solution for certain property owners that have buildings that have sat there with no upgrades for a long time, or buildings that are not in prime locations, and some buildings that truly have expired. Mm. Right. I mean, I think that the interesting thing that, that landlords and office owners are, are discovering that real estate has an expiration date. Hence, we're seeing these ideas of conversion. There's a lot of buildings in Manhattan that have to be demolished and rebuilt. One of the two deals that we're doing is basically we're stripping down super prime building down to the core and shell and rebuilding on the core and shell we're doing that in miami just got approved 407 lincoln road which is the tallest office building in miami beach but the ugliest building in miami beach that we're stripping down and rebuilding as well we have uh, we're developing three office buildings in miami beach you have plenty of new yorkers that moved to miami they didn't move to the city of miami I'm talking about the hedge fund guys, the private equity guys that all live on North Bay Road and Star Island and, you know, in, in Sunset One, Two, Three, Four. I mean, this is where wealth is. People did not move to Miami Beach to sit 45 minutes in traffic to their office to go to downtown Miami, right, or to Brickell. New Yorkers, you know, if you're a true New Yorker, you don't want to go to suburbia. Right? So, and you didn't move to Miami to have a suburban life in the sense of commute. Uh, so we're filling a void that is very much needed. And the rents in Miami are, are astonishing. Um, but there's no product. And it started really when, when, I went, when we opened an office in Miami. When we acquired the Raleigh, we looked around for Class A office. doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It just purely doesn't exist. Barry Sterling built one building across from the one. Which is a you know the building is fully occupied. It's a nice building. Um, it was the nicest thing at the time in Miami Beach. It's not probably something Barry would maybe build in New York, but from Miami Beach, it was it was definitely um, it was definitely a great building. And then a small project came came about called 18 Sunset, which recently did a lease at 160 triple net, which is an almost 200 bucks a foot, 190 a foot. You know compared to New York prices. Um, there is no inventory. We ended up renting an office at a building that we're, we're, we're buying and, and redeveloping, but there is no Class A in Miami Beach.
1: Are you looking to sell anything right now? You know, are you happy with how your portfolio stands?
0: So the answer is no, because what would I do with the money, right? When you have great real estate with extremely long-term debt, when rents, we have increased rents, There is nothing to, if I sold the pyramid, what would I replace it with? So the answer is no, we're not sellers. We're long-term holders.
1: Deconstruct airs every Monday wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or a guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking at Brookfield's defaults in downtown LA and the state of the office market across the city's financial center. Tune in then.